0: What's up guys, this is Corey Baker from Baker Forging Tool. In my business, we do tons of heavy grinding every single day, and we needed a grinder that could take abuse and keep on trucking without slowing down billet production. The Ameribraid Variable Speed 2x72 is just that. On top of all of this, their customer support is outstanding. Eric and Kevin are always available and fast to help with any situation. If you're in the market for a top-of-the-line grinder, or maybe just an accessory to add to your existing setup, go to ameribraid.com and use the code HUSTLE100 for 100 bucks off any grinder package. Alright, next up, the Hustle & Grind Podcast.
1: what's up everybody welcome to the hustling grind podcast i'm noah bloomberg from Eniat river forge here with ryan coakley from ryan shadborn knifeworks
2: Hello. our special
1: guest today is tobias hangler how are hey you guys today, sir
2: thank you for having me
1: welcome uh so just quickly let's go ahead and introduce yourself to uh to our listeners because some of them might not be familiar with you uh where are you from and what exactly do you do sir
2: Um, my name is tobias hangler i am a trained metallurgist and these days full-time bladesmith so i've studied um, metallurgy at university afterwards worked for a bit and uh, slowly transitioned into full-time knife making and i focus on um, culinary knife making heat treating metallurgy all the all the fine geometry high hardness stuff um, basically now and just love forging and love the crafts as as a basis for all of it
3: awesome awesome there was one question i wanted to get out of the way right off the bat a lot of us include including myself use aebl stainless how familiar are you with aebl and if you're very familiar the question that i hear a lot and i've had myself is how critical is the cryo step like and does using a household freezer versus dry ice slurry or liquid nitrogen like make a huge difference um actually it's a it's a pretty good and interesting question
2: i personally use 14 c28 N a lot more which is very very similar to aebl it just has a bit more nitrogen basically so it's a basically the difference is mostly towards um a little bit higher corrosion resistance other than that it is very similar i mean Uh, laren thomas for example has done a bunch of testing on it and both of these deals um basically benefit equally from cryo i would say it's very similar Um, if you get the knife right after the heat treatment so right after your quench you bring it down to room temperature and put it into the household freezer right away like within five minutes um then there's not too much difference um, to using for example co2 um, or even liquid nitrogen so the benefit of using liquid nitrogen with this steel is that even if you quench it um, and you go into the cryo two or three hours later or five hours later you will get the same result but if you are very quick after the heat treat um, after the quench you go right into the cryo and the retained austenite hasn't had time to stabilize itself yet um, it will basically transform pretty well too Um, there is a pretty good diagram out there (laughs) obviously i don't have it like at my fingertips but um, i have it in the back of my mind and that is basically just a statement that the performance difference is very small if you go into your minus 20 degrees celsius freezer right after the quench
3: Okay. I th- I think that gives a lot of makers out there peace of mind too cuz I know a lot of got a uh, uh, liquid nitrogen dewar and to keep it filled is pretty pricey. Yeah, it's especially for the hobbyist.
2: Yeah, if you're a hobbyist or like doing batches, or if you're doing batches, it's probably a lot better. But for me, it's also a cost, a couple hundred euros each time to fill the door and go to the store. And um, in summer, maybe you have one and a half, two months until it's, it's all evaporated. <laughs> so yeah, it adds up. It adds up.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I think it that's just depends up. on the, like you're saying for the hobbyist versus somebody that's doing it full time. You know, if you've got... It, you know that's going to kind of keep the pressure on you to make sure that you're producing what you need to produce. You know to to make make use of that liquid nitrogen before it evaporates.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's by far not the worst thing in the world. If you do like 10, 10 20 knives, it's it's all paid for. I mean then it's in the in the two, three euros per knife uh, region, and you get a couple of more percent out of your steel, and it's all good. I mean at the end of the day, we all sell knives that cost um a good amount of money compared to the factory knives. So we want to get everything out of them that we can and just push the performance as much as you can. And I think having liquid nitrogen as a professional maker is, is a very low cost at the end of the day, but for the hobbyists, there's not going to be too much difference with ABL if you go into the freezer right afterwards. So no tempering before, if you do quench temper and then you go into the household freezer, there's no point in that, but just right after the quench, bring it down to room temperature pretty quickly and go into the freezer. Then you'll get like 95% of what you would have with um, cryo. Oh, awesome. that's
1: Really good info. I, I had no idea that the, the time frame was such a, a, a factor. So that's really cool to know.
2: I mean, I studied seven years of metallurgy without um, Knowing that <laughs> it was, uh, it's just one study that I read that I stumbled across um, that showed that pretty well. So it's not, it's not cryo is still not too well understood. Um, so there's a lot of funny things going on. Um, some people claim, for example, that the the heating rate after the cryo is important. Others say that the holding time is important. Um, so there's still some contradicting um, data out there, but getting it to a defined low temperature definitely helps. And that's also what I do with all my, um, like if I use 50 to 100 or um, any steel in that category, I just always go into the household freezer um, because it's no risk, it's no cost. I have it at the shop anyways. Um, and it's just a defined end temperature for my heat treatment. So in the summer, it could be 30 degrees Celsius. Sorry for, for the Fahrenheit, guys. I have no idea. But you can imagine <laughs> summer temperatures, winter temperatures. There's going to be a bunch of difference. So, yeah. um, and there's actually like 40, 50 degrees Celsius um, in extremes. And that can impact your um, heat treatment outcome even if it's just slightly, but it bugs me <laughs> that it's possible that just the surrounding temperature would have an influence. So I just decided for myself like five, six years ago, whatever I do after the quench, it just goes into the freezer because it doesn't do no harm. And it's always the same end temperature then, if it if it's not cryo anyways, if it's not going into the liquid nitrogen. And even then, I just put it into the household freezer first um, because it reduces the thermal stress on it. Like afterwards, I put it into the liquid nitrogen, but it's already at uh, a lower starting temperature.
3: So So, are you you
2: saying you freeze all your steels? Yes, household (laughs) freezer, all my steels. Because even if you do 50 to 100, it depends on uh, the retained austenite content. Um, So that's like the soft phase that you have in the steel that that's the reason why you do cryo basically you have some steel that doesn't transform into martensite that is called retained austenite because in the austenization step you get carbon into solution you have your austenite and then you quench it and basically we always assume that it turns into martensite but there is like a remaining percentage in any steel that will be retained austenite um so even on a low alloy low anything steel like a i don't know c75 or something you will have a small percentage of retained austenite and if you go lower on temperature it will always transform better so that's why i do it on all my steels even though it's like not to find in any data sheets um but it's just something like a good practice for me um to always have the same end temperature and um i have friends who work in research departments and he said that. in, in larger heat treatment facilities, this is a common mistake that they, you know, they quench a big machine part and they want to move on. They want to move on with the day. And these parts can take a good amount of time to cool down. So they will just start the tempering process while the piece is still at uh, like 50, 60, 70 degrees Celsius. And that has an impact. And then they have re- increased retained austenite contents. Um, In the long run the parts don't um hold up to the expected life uh lifetime that they should. so there's definitely that like don't temper if you're too if you're still too warm um that would be important or if you use a warm quenching oil if you heat uh, if you heat your quenching oil to i don't know 70 degrees celsius or something so um also don't go directly into the temper afterwards. Always cool it down at least to room temperature. Just you know, give it ten seconds under the water, under the running water, at least then you are at room temperature. It's just something to keep in mind.
1: So you're talking about directly after the quench, so let's say you've got something like fifty two one hundred or, or some other carbon steel that you're quenching in oil. You'll then, after it's quenched in oil, do you go directly into the freezer after the quench, or do you let it sit and get to room temperature and then go into the freezer, or or how are you doing that?
2: Actually, like my procedure is um, after the austenization, I quench in hot oil at one hundred and forty degrees for fifty to one hundred. So that is, (laughs) are you are you starting to convert? That would be good. (laughs) I think most of your listeners are uh, more used to Fahrenheit, and I'm not.
1: Yeah. So, so, you're, so quenching, you're quenching an oil that's 140 degrees? Celsius, yeah. Okay, so that's 284 degrees Fahrenheit.
2: Right. And then I go into the quench plates. So I have a set of dies for my press um, that I put the knives in after that. So I quench it down underneath the martensitic transition area, so the martensite formation has already begun and then i go out of the hot oil into quench plates um which then are not really quench plates because they don't do the quenching but they will ensure that my knife stay flat um, and gotcha. that works fantastically really like yeah, having yeah no, i, hot I oil do the same thing when, when after plates. i
1: quench something in oil i don't quench it in quite that hot of an oil but i am doing it like an oil quench throw it right into some aluminum plates just to make sure that i don't have any warpage or anything like that And i know that that's drawing out some more heat is that also converting at the same time still
2: yes um basically even just cooling it down in 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 the air will form the the uh, martensite at that point um the whole the whole idea of quenching it in a hot oil and then giving it a little bit more time is to reduce the the warping so you have to quench down to 160 or so um, pretty quickly, otherwise you don't get the full hardness. And the other, um in that scenario, you would not get the full um, hardness. You wouldn't have martensite all the way. But then afterwards, you actually have a bit of time. Like there is a minute door two of time where that that you can play around with straightening the blade. Right. And um, we talked about the retained austenite, so. When the the austenite forms martensite, it actually increases in size. So it has a small percent of increase in size. So what happens if you have a knife that is just transforming and it has a slight bend? um, As you straighten the bend, um, the retained austenite is now favored to transition into martensite because it's under stress. So it's like tensioning. And it wants to have more room, um, so basically there is a push towards um, transforming into Martin because the Martin is the bigger phase, and there's more room now, kind of, <laughs> in a in a simplistic way. Um, so I appreciate
1: I appreciate the simplistic uh, description there. We're, <laughs> I tried. We're, we're sim- it's, it's a fine line. We're <laughs> simple bladesmiths here. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just uh, stop me if I get drawn off uh in one direction either one
3: of those if it's too stupid or if it's too technical um this is all fantastic information i i maybe once or twice in the entire time i've been making knives had seen somebody freeze or cryo a carbon steel and i believe it was onar kagler i think he did it in one of his uh dies in every film videos and I was confused by it because I had never seen anyone do it. I don't know of anybody who does that. Um, I'm I'm not
2: saying that it will increase the performance of the blade by so much. Um, It's it's probably not going to even be measurable in winter times uh, or like in a good day. But for me, it's just peace of mind that on a hot day, I still have the same end temperature. And it's always the same. You know, we have a long process chain of of, uh, doing what we do and each step uh, will influence the next step so if you normalize maybe the temperature is off a little bit and then uh, you anneal and then the annealing rate is off by a little bit you know all these changes they accumulate and um, then you say yeah well i austenized the steel the same as i do always but maybe the starting product that you had had a completely different structure by then already Um, so these process variations of uh plus minus one or two hrc that we are used to um that is partly the steel and that is p- partly just how we fuck up the process in every stage um yeah so you i can't you can't do better you can get it narrower <laughs> i really possible.
3: like it i feel i feel like that's a good practice to just get into your routine even yep. just in case you know Um,
2: just in case that's
3: it yeah and that way you just eliminate the small problems
2: Um, just like you if you do a scientific test you also you want to rule out as many factors as possible you like the first point is you you maybe you don't assume that temperature has a an effect when you weigh a piece of steel, but, you know, just to be safe, let's always measure it at the same temperature. Um, so we always have the same results and, you know, it's just a good practice to eliminate as many rare variables as possible. I think.
1: I love that man. That's great. So before we get off the uh, topic of, of cryo, let's do one more. Um, I, and I've seen a couple makers who will cryo treat, uh, in between temper cycles are you familiar with that practice yep so what what's Um, the purpose of that and and i've seen it specifically with carbon steels so with carbon
2: steels interesting um well the the (laughs) okay (laughs) i'm just trying to find the right part where i start um with the explanation it's it's again it's retained austenite so we quench We have the quenched structure and now let's say we have a big chunk of retained austenite because we have more carbon in solution for whatever reason or we have more alloying elements like some elements some alloying elements will favor the formation of retained austenite so retained austenite again it's the soft phase we don't want it in knife making in some other um parts of the industries, um, it's actually favorable because it's more ductile. In knife making, we don't want it, to to simplify it. We don't want to have any retained austenite. So we have, want to have 100% austenite. Let's say I quench the steel, it has 20% retained austenite, just uh, any number now. Um, now I do cryo. I can re- reduce the retained austenite by a lot. Let's say that we reduce it by I don't know, 14% more. So now we have 6% of retained austenite. And now I do the first tempering cycle. Um, and during the tempering cycle, the retained austenite basically has too much carbon in it to form martensite um, in a way. So it, it's overly saturated with carbon, and it cannot like form martensite for that reason at this temperature. Um, so as you temper it some of the carbon has the chance to migrate out of the austenite into carbides so it goes out of the ost, uh, out of the retained austenite and it forms uh small carbides either in the austenite or on the boundary of the of the um of the crystallites so then as you cool it back down to room temperature or even below that now the the austenite, the retained austenite, has a better chance of actually forming martensite because it has lost some of that carbon. Um, so, is that a, in any way understandable? <laughs> or should I try again? Yeah, absolutely. I no, follow no. you for sure. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. So, we have yeah. too much carbon in solution. Um, we drop the temperature in the first cryo. Most of the stuff is going to transform, but not all of it. Some is just like, much carbon in there not enough space it's crammed in there and now we temper it and the higher we temper the more carbon can actually go out of the the austenite and then the austenite is kind of relieved in a way and it can transform a bit more easy because there's less carbon atoms uh, stuck in the grid that that would make the transformation a bit harder I think that's that's a good way of thinking of it. And you know, if you do three cycles uh, tempering and cryo tempering and cryo, then you just want to that's just pure perfectionism. You just want to get like as little as possible. The ni- liquid nitrogen bottle is already there, so why not s- stick the knife in there uh, just a couple more times to get it as good as you can. <laughs> Um,
1: Interesting. So so that's actually the, if I'm understanding this correctly, that's actually the reason for doing multiple temper cycles in the first place is when you're pulling it out and cooling it down, it's allowing that, that Martin site, or sorry, the, the austenite that's been relieved by the first temper cycle to help transfer into more martensite, And then you go back into the temper after that's happened.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, um, that is part of the reason and the other part. Well, and a subsequent uh, reason that comes from that is, now imagine we have the 5-6% of retained austenite that didn't transform the first time, but they did transform um, after the first tempering cycle. So they didn't transform after the quench, but afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. You did the tempering, go back down to the, uh, the second cryo, and now you have basically fresh martensite. And these however many percent of fresh martensite have never been tempered so they they basically weren't part of the first temper because at the first temper they were austenite right so you have untempered martensite in there that is brittle as glass and that's why you do the second or even the third um tempering cycle it basically all comes down to how many alloying elements you have and how much concern you have of retained austenite so um like the first cycle Reduce pretty much most of it. Second cycle, reduce pretty much all of it, and then you have still a small percentage of fresh martensite that you still want to temper in the third run.
1: This is so cool. I love. I love this information. This is so cool. <laughs> all right, um, Ryan. Let's let's. While we're at kind of a stopping point, let's throw in uh, an ad for one of our sponsors here, and then we can get back into it.
3: All right. Shout out to Maritime Knife Supply.
4: Hustle and Grind is sponsored by Maritime Knife Supply. Whether you're looking for steel, abrasives, handle material, forges, epoxy, or anything for making in general, Maritime Knife Supply has you covered. And in the U.S. or Canada, they ship faster than the great cobra chicken Goosises that their country is known for. Go to Maritime Knife Supply, and when you buy a 10-pack of belts, get 10% off, and tell them we sent you, eh? There you go,
1: Maritime Knife Supply, and if you're looking for any of these steels that we're talking about, Lawrence probably carries them. So go check him out, Maritime Knife Supply. That man if he has doesn't, everything he'll
3: source good. it for you.
1: For real, yeah. I've actually I've been doing some hidden tangs this week, and uh, I've been using those files that I got from Lawrence, and they are phenomenal. Don't buy cheap files from the hardware store. Get some good stuff from
3: Lawrence. He had a shitload of 1095 drop ship to me.
1: Uh, yeah, I saw those giant sheets jamming to Christmas, dude. Yeah. What, 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 what size were those sheets?
3: Uh, two foot by four foot. It's, it's half of a four foot by eight foot sheet.
1: How much does each of those weigh?
3: Oh, I don't know. 30, 40 pounds. Dang.
1: Yep. You've been busy. All right. Yeah. So we've, we've gotten into some nitty gritty. Let's go ahead and go with something a little bit lighter. Um, just this morning, uh, Tobias, I saw you had a post about uh, some classes that you did, and yeah, that's there, was right. some, there was some beautiful knives in there. And I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this little tool that you had for pushing the blades into the grinder while you were grinding bevels. <laughs> so you did
2: pay close attention to the video. <laughs> so. Awesome.
1: So, for the listeners, I, I, it's going to be tough to describe this. So, you are going to have to you are going to have to go to his page on Instagram, and you are going to have to see what I am talking about here. But essentially, he has a work rest with rods on it that are vertical rods, and this little tool that looks like it has like a skateboard bearing on the end of it with a lever, so that you can basically use that mechanical pressure to push the blade into the platen, and then that skateboard bearing or whatever the bearing is, that roller rolls along the blade and provides even pressure as you're drawing the bevel across uh, your platen i want to know where did that come from
2: uh yeah it's actually been a development uh ongoing for the last years um first of all i want to give credits to benjamin cayman who kind of um pushed me in the right direction he's uh, cayman underscore knives at instagram he makes phenomenal kitchen knives, and he's also a lot um, putting a lot of effort into process reliability and process repeatability, basically. So we won't we as as uh as you make more knives you don't want to fuck up as many (laughs) it's nice if they turn out good so you kind of want to get used to that so um after a while for me freehand grinding i mean i I freehand ground all my knives for eight or nine years i think no work rests just like hands and go on the onto the platen um after a while i had trouble with my my fingers um <clears throat> and my neck mostly mostly most of all so if you grind 10 knives in a row and you just stand there um and you support the knife just by your fingers um it, it gets tedious um oh yeah for sure and so just started the development came in, uh benjamin cayman had a, a great system that worked for him and that was basically the first um Yeah, the first uh, mechanical idea that got me thinking in the right direction. And that was very simple. You just have one rail uh, or like imagine your table, your table rest. And then there's just uh, a couple of millimeters of um, a sheet metal coming up right before the belt. So it's just like uh, like a small end stop, basically, like an L bracket, just very tiny. And now, if you have your knife, um, you push it with the spine against this L bracket, and then you rotate it into the belt. As long as the blade height is always the same, your angle is always going to be the same, um, depending on the distance from the from the L bracket to um, to the belt. And that is actually very little. Like if you do uh, almost like by definition, if you do a full grind, um, a full flat grind the distance is zero. So you cannot have a sheet metal in between. But anything else than that, um, you just have like one or two millimeters of sheet metal right in front of your belt. And that will give you a consistent angle on both sides. And as you have this end stop, that will allow you to put a lot more pressure during grinding, um, especially during pre-grinding before heat treatment. Because now there's nothing holding you back. It's not your finger strength or dexterity that that you have to keep the angle consistent and lean on that you can basically go pretty much everything your, your belt grinder has to offer <laughs> um, and as I was grinding more and more with this jig for about one and a half years I, I <laughs> actually I was grinding a huge uh, apex ultra um, cleaver for uh, for a client in Australia and that was the moment where I was like I just you know, you keep pushing with your thumb, and mm-hmm. I was feeling stupid because I, I could not apply the pressure needed for for the progress that was uh, that felt right. It's just um, there was too much material and too little strength in my thumb left. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I need a lever, and I I was always bothered by um, basically the friction of the fingers. So I was like, okay, let's stick a let's make a stick and put a roller bearing on the front of that. And um, I just basically created something very ugly but functional. And as it happens to be, um, Tobin Machines, who makes fantastic grinders um, that I use in my workshop, he, is, uh, he went to the same university as I did. And um, when I bought my grinder, he was looking for a workshop. So it happened that we ended up in the same space. So he basically has a corner of my workshop. Um, so we have a very close iteration of ideas. Um, if I have an idea, he usually picks it up, um, sees if it's if it's something useful or not, and if it proves worth um, worthy of uh, making this into a serious prototype and um, developing uh, an actual product out of it, he will he will do that, and then will offer it to the rest of the world too. So the thing that you saw is like the second generation of what he developed off of how i basically developed my thing and worked and yeah it has a couple of tweaks in there now from from different sources i think um, it's way more adjustable than what i did you can also adjust the angles and you can use it on the you can actually use it on the context wheel as well for s grinds which is really? fantastic yes <laughs> oh. then you just you basically you flip the blade so now the reference surface is not the spine of the blade but the edge of the blade if you want that I want that I want to have the S-grind very close to the edge and I want to have it um, parallel to the edge so I'll just flip the the blade down and now again resting against the L-bracket and leaning it into the contact wheel and then I always have the same height, I always have the same angle and I can apply a fair amount of pressure and um, do s grinds like that. And as I teach a lot of classes, I see that this works like super beginner friendly. It's still not easy, but it's a lot easier than anything else. (laughs) If you start freehanding stuff, um, that would not be possible in, in a bladesmithing class if you have people who have never done
3: that before. Keep me posted on when those are for sale. Cause that's like the next evolution of how I grind. Cause I grind off a work rest. I wrap yep. my thumbs or I use a push stick. Yep. So yep. that would be perfect.
2: The, um, I think they are going up for sale actually. Um, UK blade show, the, the YouTube channel, um, Vince has visited me a couple of weeks ago and we did three days of video shooting. And, um, it, he hasn't released it yet because he hadn't had the time to edit it, but I did um, like a detailed video on how to use this thing, basically, and what it is. So um, I'm sure he's going to release in the next two or three weeks. Um, he just released uh, one or two days ago, the second part of the uh, induction forging video, if anybody's interested in induction forging. Um, I just wanted to show that it's possible to make knives just using induction. So. Yeah, go to UK Play Joe and watch the video.
3: I'm super into, like, interested in induction heaters just because, like, I like machinery and equipment and how things yeah. work and, like. That just seems like magic to me.
2: It is. It still is. Like you just flick the switch and 5 to, to 12 seconds later you have red hot steel in your hands. And it just changes the way you work and changes the way you think because the gas forge is you think about that very well if you want to heat it up because it's going to take 10 minutes until you have a heatable usable heat and the induction forge is just completely different you know i got a bend um if it's before heat treatment no worries i go out to the induction heater heat it up and three minutes later i'm back on the grinder
1: that's beautiful do
3: <laughs> well, you yeah, think that... it'll ever uh, get to a point where people are making damascus and induction forges
2: um in the video i do a go my billet so it's like a five-layer um damascus is a bit tricky you need pretty pretty beefy i mean you can do you can do smaller billets you can do like 10 12 layers um at a time but uh most of the serious makers who want to make and produce more damascus um the billets just get bigger because basically the bigger the billet the better your yield is going to be, the less waste you're going to have, and the faster you're going to be per kilogram. So my billets at the moment have around eight to ten kilos kilograms usually, so um, about a, a little bit 20. below twenty pounds. Yeah. Um. So you would use you would need a pretty big
3: uh, induction heater for that, but it's not a problem with a small forge. We use um, them in the mechanic world. Noah and I are both mechanics yeah. uh, for heating up like exhaust flange bolts and. Stuff that's really, really rotten. Yeah, you probably got the portable
2: units with the magic wand.
3: Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, you and those were the, the head of the bolt.
2: <laughs> yeah, and those were the only units that were available like a couple of years ago. But it becomes more accessible, and um, yeah, I think it's a cool technology. Even like when I was a student, um, I was looking for a workshop that had you know all the proper ventilation for a coal forge and all that and all that's not needed anymore then you can work in a basement Um, you can make fantastic knives with a belt grinder and induction heater and a rolling mill and you can make pattern welded steel and you don't have any noise and you don't have any fumes anymore it's just you know just it's it's a tool in the box it's not the right for everyone, but it's going to be interesting for many people who live in the city, or uh, and who still want to make it happen, and who can't run a coal forge because the government won't allow you allow you to do that, and the neighbors won't be happy. So, I think it's it's very cool technology, and depending on where your energy source, um, where the electricity comes from in your, in your country. Um, it can actually be pretty green too. Like in Austria, we have a lot of uh, water energy. So it's like 85% is renewable energy. So it's definitely better than
3: burning gas or burning oil. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up. Noah and I were talking about the difference in our energy bills before you hopped on. Oh, really? He he lives in a hydro energy area. I, Where I live in Maine... We produce power and export it to Massachusetts and Boston mm-hmm. and then and then import it down from Canada, and it's super expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah I'm, I am very lucky to live in an area that is almost 100% hydroelectric. We've got so many dams around us. There's one 10 miles down the road from me. Yep. I live right on the Columbia River, which is a pretty large river in comparison to um, a lot of them. And there's multiple dams along it, and I mean our our area is well known for having less expensive power, and it's you know,
2: and it it hasn't changed for you, like it hasn't gone up. No, because in Austria it's the same thing. We have, like I said, eighty five percent or so uh, water energy. But the energy price is always um, based off the most expensive resource at the moment. So uh, we just had a 290% increase to 390% uh, of the electric, uh, electric cost. Uh, compared oh to the gosh. year before so it's like before you paid 100 euros and now you pay 390 it's like oh what the gosh. hell
3: <laughs> damn i thought our increase was bad they hit us with 80% increase earlier this year and they're pushing for another 40% on top of that right now it's absurd
1: so how are your i don't want to get political here but are any of your <laughs> energy increases due to some of the stuff that's happening over there uh in in eastern europe
2: yeah, definitely. Um, I think part of it was you know, just a scarcity of resources and um, um, a lot of the, the power supplies, especially the plants in Germany run or probably most of Europe run of uh, coal and gas. And um, a lot of the gas came from the Ukraine and from, from Russia. And both are not as available anymore now, obviously. So um, the energy mix just has been hit very hard, um, and basically the, the the plant making water energy just demands higher prices now because it's a free market situation, and they can, even though the costs of making the electricity hasn't gone up. Um, it it has been stabilizing again um, in the B two B market, as I hear, but. As a private individual or as a small company, you you haven't been uh, put down again. So I don't know
1: if that, if and when that's going to happen. Gotcha. So unfortunately, that just means that the the cost of your products are going to have to go up because the cost of making them goes up, and so it all just rolls downhill.
3: Yeah, I that's had it heard that they just pulled off a successful nuclear fusion so hopefully oh, really? by the time yeah so hopefully by the time we're old men energy <laughs> will be free
1: there's all kinds of exciting stuff happening in the world of energy um there's uh, a israeli company i believe that has developed a single piston engine that produces electricity and it runs off of standard fuels um standard readily available fuels and you can put it in a vehicle or, or something like that. And it's literally just a generator, but because mm-hmm. it's a single piston and it has no other moving parts, there's no moving valves or anything. Um, it's extremely efficient, uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it can produce electrical powered cars, but the electricity is produced on board. So you don't have, you're not required to charge them and it's yep. far more fuel efficient than you know, say a Chevy Volt, which is essentially a, a it's a regular four-cylinder engine yep. that produces electricity that then, you know, stores and and powers the wheels. Um, so there's Interesting. that and there's synthetic fuels that people are developing um, synthetic fuels that are essentially carbon neutral. Once the equipment is created to make them, um, there's a company up in Canada doing that. And I know there's a European country or sorry, a European company um, in conjunction with Volkswagen that's creating that. So that's there's a lot of really cool technological stuff that's happening with that nowadays.
2: Yeah, definitely. The, the real question is always where's the energy really coming from? Like where is it generated? Because uh, even, even gasoline is um, it's basically already the battery. Um, It's already the energy stored in a media. It's not where the energy comes from, but it was like originally solar energy before it became oil. Um, So that is... uh, I don't remember who it was, but some guy said the interesting thing about the conventional engine is not the motor, it's the tank. It's like the fuel tank because you just load it up in two minutes and you can go 800 kilometers um and it's not a problem with range and that's what we see in the electric cars it's one of the biggest drawbacks is just the range and the how limited you are if your battery dies and if your battery goes out so then you have to wait for 40 minutes until until it's charged up and ready to go again
3: yeah Yeah. evs take a pounding here because it gets cold the batteries do not like being frozen
1: there are definite drawbacks, but I mean, you got to think about the, and this is coming from a mechanic who works on diesel car <laughs> or gasoline and mostly, but uh, you know, if, if you're in a situation like for myself, for instance, um, I drive 20 minutes to work and 20 minutes back on a standard EV charge, I could drive to work and back for a week and yep. then charge it up on the weekends and I wouldn't have any issues there.
2: No, and that's a perfect distance. I mean, if you do mostly short distances, uh, electric cars really pay off. And like right right now in your, uh, in Austria, if you go to, to the gas station, even for a small car like mine, um, it's like 60, 70 euros. Um, so it's it, it hurts. <laughs> and there's still some free electric charging stations where you can, um, if you had an electric car, you could just go there, plug it in, and. Um, have a free charge, and it's definitely the driving is a lot cheaper. I think the only Seven, drawback for
3: is is seventy is the euros. That's that's what hundred and forty bucks.
2: No, I think it's still the same. Um, oh, okay. I think it's a pretty one to one ratio at the moment. I'm not at I'm not following, but approximately one to one.
3: Yeah, I we complain about I'm our following. gas prices over here a lot, and we shouldn't complain because. <laughs> Even Canada is way more expensive than we are. Gas right now here's three nineteen a gallon, so four liters. Mm.
2: Yeah, still a lot cheaper than here. We pay one euro sixty per liter, so probably like
3: fifty percent more.
1: <clears throat> oh yeah, probably about that.
3: So, Brutal. how'd you get into metallurgy and knife making, and like, like what leads somebody to the past? of being a metallurgist? <laughs> uh, I
2: was in in business school before. So when I was 16, 14, 15, 16, um, I was basically in a aimed in a completely different direction. Um, but it started to interest me. I was just intrigued by fire and forging. And um, I don't know where it came from. I had no, no, it was intrinsic mo- motivation. I had no idea where it came from, really. I just... Felt like I wanted to have a fire and beat steel. So I did what any reasonable person would do and get a blowtorch and (laughs) just start hammering anything. And then, you know, just starting with a file and device, uh, upgrading a coal forge and a railroad track and just kind of snowballed into the whole thing of forging forging tools at first and forging very crappy knives a little bit after with that and i just made a knife out of construction steel because i thought well steels can't be that different they all are steel aren't they so let's just make a knife out of whatever i can find and then i realized okay that's complete crap that's not even remotely usable There, there is more to that and then I started reading and I found heat treatment always very fascinating how you can make the same material behave completely different just by playing with fire and cold and basically time. <clears throat> um, by the time I got my, I graduated um, with A-levels, I wanted to do uh, basically an apprenticeship as a blacksmith but there aren't a lot of blacksmiths out there anymore who do this full-time and who aren't like construction welders. Um, So I did a couple of internships and I realized, okay, most of the guys have a big blacksmith sign in the front and then you work there and uh, for six six weeks you work there and there has never been a fire lit once. Like six weeks and there's you weld every day, take and MAC and everything, but uh, you don't heat up steel. You don't pound steel. That's just like the rare um, order once in every blue moon. So I thought to myself, okay, if I can't do that really, um, what's the next thing that brings me closer to what I, what I feel drawn to, what I'm interested in? And... And I thought, OK, let's check out the universities. <laughs> and there was one university who did something that uh, felt like a pyromaniac would be happy there. And I was. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but it was a very long and interesting um, yeah, time at the university. Now, now I'm happy I mean, to be in the workshop
1: again. <laughs> so so being... you just go ahead. Go ahead, man. Noah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, so so you chose metallurgy because that was pretty much the only university available course that had to do with with blacksmithing or anything to that to that nature.
2: Basically, yes, that was what what felt the closest to me. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous, um, but I was like, yeah, I can always fall back. You know, if I fall back on that, if I ever get injured or something, I I still have. Um, I still have an office job that I can fall back on and maybe it's not even the worst idea I mean um, making knives is pretty intense on your body and um, I mean all the dust and I don't know maybe it's just me being stupid but um, there's a there's bit of yeah strain on the body and on the tenants and the joints and everything so it's. It can happen pretty quickly that you lose a finger. I mean, what do you do if you lose your right thumb? Um, what are you going to do? And maybe it's not bad to have a plan you'd B. You'd be screwed. <laughs> I, yeah, you'd be screwed, really. I mean, and I, for example, cut into my right thumb um, last year or one and a half years ago. I, ru- I cut right through a tenant and, you know, it's a three-month break for you. You can't do anything. You have a, yeah, it's your right thumb, so. Mm-hmm sit in front of the office and try to do a um try to do your web design a little bit neater with your left hand (laughs) on the mouse so i don't know yeah that was basically the thought i saw i saw that my uncles who have been um men uh, they have been roofers all their life they they kind of struggled in their higher age so i was like okay let's just do university first and then see <laughs> how knife making goes and if it doesn't go well i can always fall back on that
3: i struggle now <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm in my late 30s yeah uh, yeah it wears on you yeah it is knife making's really hard on the tips of my thumbs
2: yeah that's why you need that grinding jig <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah exactly no for real it it is not i mean Partly, I think we're all doing this because we like the struggle and we like the the hustle and the grind. Obviously, um, but <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you. But it has its limits. Um, we don't we don't want to be cripples by our forties or fifties. I mean, we we all want to have something out of life too, and um, that's what I start seeing more and more now. In the beginning, I was just like all in. I gotta finish this knife, no matter what the cost is. Um, but yeah, I I like waking up in the morning and not having too many things of my body hurt. So I try to be more reasonable on myself. And that sounds amazing. A- I wonder
1: what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a full time knife maker, or sorry, a full time mechanic and a part time <laughs> knife maker. So I don't think I've ever woken up and not had something hurt. the The, the knife yeah. making for me is the the easy part on my body. That's uh. <laughs> that's nothing you know most of my my cuts and burns and and messed up joints are all from my day job it's the it's the knife making where i get to relax so
2: (laughs) that must be nice now uh, for real construction jobs are a lot worse as i said i i did a couple of internships and um I also worked in the industries in rolling mills and stuff, and nothing is as hard on your body as construction work, in my opinion, because there's no crane, there's no reliable process, no nothing, but it's just you and another guy, and then there's this railing that needs to go up there, and um, getting the crane is like a couple hundred bucks, so if you want to earn money, you got to bring that up yourself, and Mm -hmm. you just make it
1: happen somehow, and that is really bad for you. So. Yeah, I was I was working a construction job. Uh, let's just say back in the day, and I was on some ladder scaffolding. So two ladders up on the side of this this house that we had built, and
3: oh, ladder we were, jacks, dude. I hate ladder jacks.
1: And and we had these ladder jacks with this uh, aluminum scaffolding that went in between the two ladders, and me and my buddy were hauling these full sheets. So four, four by eight sheets of siding up these ladders and hanging them with this ladder scaffolding while there was, I don't even know how fast, but wind real bad wind and pouring rain beating us, like literally beating us up against the side of this house while we're hanging this, this, uh, this, this sheening onto the side of this house. And that was the day that I decided that I wanted to work indoors.
4: (laughs) And And I will
1: never forget that day because we got a break and uh, we went inside and I mean, you're just soaked. You're soaked from, from head to toe. All your whole body is wet. And you got, I mean, these big, you know, nail bags that are hung around your waist and you can't move because everything's sticking to you and you're, you got thick clothing on. And you got these nail bags. So we just sat on these, uh, saw horses inside. You couldn't even sit down properly. So we're just straddling these saw horses with our heads in our hand or our yeah, heads in our hands, just trying to like breathe for like 10 minutes. And then we're back out, back out there in it. And, and that was one of the, one of the worst days I've ever had working. And, and I will always remember that as the day that I decided I wanted to work indoors.
3: <laughs> I think roofers have it the toughest. Roofers for sure. Uh, Yeah. They work year round here.
1: Yeah.
2: I enjoy roofing. Honestly. Yeah, I was just going to say, I also enjoyed it. I worked with my uncles a couple of times. It is a rough job, and you have exactly those scenarios. You know, it's a, I don't know, a March, um, and you start doing something, and it pours rain, and it's like almost freezing, and you're out in the rain all day. But then again, I mean, you're just out in nature a lot and you travel a lot, basically, and you get to know the city from a different perspective and you just, I don't know, it, it has something to it. It's, it's pretty rough on your body, but I, I probably, yeah, would have been plan C. If knife marking doesn't work out and university also doesn't work out, I'll I'll become a roofer.
1: <laughs> that's that's funny you say that because I think uh, I think roofing was my plan C as well when I was going to school to become a mechanic. That was uh,
3: see yeah I hate heights.
1: Well, see, I don't like heights either, but I also have this weird thing in my brain where I like things that scare me. So, like, whenever you know, I don't go to. Uh, like carnivals or fairs or anything very often because i i don't really like crowds but uh when i do i find like the scariest ride that goes the highest up because that terrifies me and and that's fun (laughs) so that that's how i operate
3: so you were one of the co-developers of apex ultra steel right it was yep. you, Lauren Thomas, and Mark. How do you pronounce his last name? Uh, Marco Guldiman. Gu- Guldiman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's <laughs> from
2: Switzerland. Um, I'm Tuffland, not going to try France. to pronounce
1: that because I
3: know <laughs> I, wasn't up. I wasn't going to touch it. Uh,
2: yeah, it, exactly. That that was the original, or that is um, still the the uh, the founding team or the developing team. Actually, Marco and I got together in the very beginning. We're both bladesmiths. We both have an um, yeah, interest in metallurgy and knife steels. And we both make culinary knives and tr- you know, just try to push um, on what's possible with heat treatment and with the steels. And so we just got into a conversation. And we both wanted to have a steel that was different from what was out there at the time. Um, And we basically decided we wanted to develop a steel for us, you know, just make something that is a little bit harder and very pure and has a better
3: edge retention than what's out there. So for the layman, like most of us, how do you go about creating a steel? Like, do you have just straight bare elements and you mix them together at the right thing and melt it? And like, how does it work? How do you make a steel? basically
2: um, I mean that at that point you already invested a, a fair bit of money so how you go about developing a steel is usually on the drawing board and with simulations so um, that was also why we approached um, Larin on the way um, from knife steel nerds because he has a very First of all, he's a great metallurgist, and he knows a lot about knife steels. And um, secondly, he has a huge database um, of comparing all the steels. And that is invaluable because now we have a resource that we can actually compare whatever we create to a whole database of other steels. And we can actually say it's better, or it's not as good, or we need to change this and go up further here. Um, and it's not just us being like proud daddies and saying, yeah, this is the best steel. It cuts through an iron nail and we'll still cut a tomato. I mean, this is, you know, this is data. Um, this is comparable data done in a reproducible way. So that's basically the short version of how how um, it came that, that we approached Larry and asked him to be part of this. And um, then we... Started analyzing the data, and we all had different ideas um, in the beginning. Where where we wa- where we saw the steel, you know, you just have a gut feeling. You want this steel, but want to change something, kind of. And um, we analyzed the different approaches, analyzed the data, and basically went with our best guess. You know, um, we we said fifty to one hundred was. A very good basis for what we wanted to create so the matrix of apex ultra is based off 50 to 100 which has proven to be one of the most reliable and most used steels in uh carbon steels in knife making i think so um at that point you decide okay i want to try this composition that I think is our best guess. And then you go into, for example, simulations like uh, FactSage or different other simulations where you can calculate um, and models such a uh, uh, material. So these these simulations will give you data um, like the transition temperature of the martensite, for example, um, or an expected melting temperature, an expected solidification temperature expected phases that will form and then you can decide based on other data if the phases that will be forming and the transition uh, temperature that you see in this simulation if that is beneficial and if that's what you want or if you still need to tweak the composition for example decrease I don't know silica manganese or vanadium um, so that you only form the phases that you actually want in your steel because they are you know, the most, um, the the carbides shouldn't be too big because otherwise they decrease toughness. They should be soluble to a certain degree at certain temperatures so the steel is forgeable. Um, we wanted to create a steel that is um, producible in a conventional method. That means we don't need powder metallurgy to get fine carbides. If we would have pushed vanadium and tungsten even higher, Um, we could not produce the steel through conventional metallurgy, but we would have to go through the powder metallurgy route, which is a lot more expensive. And, uh, to be honest in the moment, impossible for us (laughs) just because all of the production facilities
3: are not available. By powder, do you mean like crucible steels, like CPMs and like CPM S30V, stuff like that? Um,
2: Powder of basically just means a different way of manufacturing. So the conventional route that I'm talking about is you have a ladle or you have a furnace, you heat up steel in a vessel and then you cast it into a block. And in the simple form, that block is then just basically forged and rolled out into the final product that is like most carbon steels are produced. on Apex Ultra, we do a refining step in between that, which makes it, um, which makes the, the structure more homogeneous and a bit more refined. That is called remelting. So we ca- we cast the steel into a block. The block is then heated up again, um, and basically, drop by drop, um, the steel is molten from the top. The drops of liquid steel go through a slag and then solidify again at the bottom. And by this process, you basically get a more homogeneous and more pure um, steel, because now the steel block doesn't just solidify in a random way from the outside to the inside, but one drop after um, another is solidifying. And in the process, um, each drop is purified by the slag that it has to go through. Okay, so that's conventional producing. Um, if you go through powder metallurgy, that means that you don't pour the liquid metal into a big block, but that you actually pour it into a nozzle where it's um, then um, atomized, basically, by a gas stream. So you blow, liquid, uh, you blow um, very high-pressure nitrogen or argon Into the stream where, or into the nozzle where the liquid uh, metal comes out, that just forms tiny droplets. These droplets are then, you know, that's the powder that is collected, that is cooled down, and that is put into a container. So you have like a huge pipe that is welded shut at the bottom. You fill in all this powder. You compress compress it as much as you can. Put on the lid and make it tight. So you weld. you basically have a tube with powder inside that is welded shut on the ends. Then you take that powder filled tube and put it in a furnace where it's heated up to high temperatures, like around 1000 degrees Celsius and higher. And it is um, compressed by an immense force. So they push in argon and a lot of it, like a couple of thousand of bars. Um, bars pressure. So In the process, the steel is heated up, and um, basically all the voids disappear, and the whole steel just becomes one piece. It sinters together, and that's powder metallurgy. So now you don't have drop-by-drop solidifying, but you have like tiny, tiny powder. Um, So that steel is the most homogenous, And you only use that method if you have no other choice, because your steel basically, Um, would solidify in an unfavorable way. Um, So that's, if you add too much vanadium, tungsten, carbon, whatever, um, your steel cannot be produced in a conventional way anymore, or the carbides that form are very detrimental. And so we we just wanted to cut in between that line, because um, either your steel costs 30 euros per kilogram um, in... A certain production stage or whatever, or it costs you know four times, five times that um, if you go with powder metallurgy. So um, it's just it's a big step. <laughs> and forging steels are all done conventionally and with adding the remelting step and having you know like a small batch. We are already on the higher side of prices just because it's the best that you can do. Basically, we try to keep all the Pollutants as small as possible. Just make the best steel as possible uh, in that way. But um, if we would have gone to powder metallurgy, first of all, there's the problem that you cannot get um, production um, capabilities at the moment. So they're all at you know they are booked for the next four years. So nobody wants to have us. (laughs) And the other problem is um, just the pure cost. That would be four times uh, of the cost that we have right now.
1: I really appreciate the the explanation that you gave of, of the two different types there. And, and I really appreciate the, the layman's terms that you were able to use so that, that <laughs> most people should be able to understand that because I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, I know a lot of uh, car parts are actually manufactured um, in that the, the second, the powder m- metallurgy way. Um, a lot of like uh, uh, connecting rods, things like that are made. Yeah things that that are
2: usually pretty tough uh, or that have a lot of strain on them or like valve caps and things something like that just weird parts that would otherwise break first um it's like the last resort that you have as a metallurgist if it if it's not possible to produce it in another way or you want to get the quality better um just let's go (laughs) part of metallurgy (laughs) it also has some drawbacks though for example, the oxygen contents are usually a little bit higher, but then yeah, that's interesting. Too deep.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. Well, um, just just quickly. Yeah, go, go Go ahead. ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I was just gonna ask um, the uh, uh, place out of Sweden um, that does the uh, the very very intricate patterns with uh, stainless steels. Um,
3: steel. Damus steel.
1: Damus, damus steel. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I heard that they use uh, powder metallurgy for creating their their steels. Do you know if that's correct?
2: Yes, I think uh, according to their homepage, uh, they use powder metallurgy. Yes, it's correct.
1: Interesting. Okay, so yeah, that, that I they're also not cheap.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, and then that they're might like kind 600 of explain Euros <laughs> the, uh, the
1: the cost. I mean, you get an amazing product, but yep. but yep. man, you gotta you gotta really want it.
2: You got to really want it. I mean, the, the price of the material is um, already that of some other knives out there. So
1: exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: It's pretty intense. So as I was just explaining how you develop a steel, we, we didn't get far. So <laughs> basically, we were at the simulation stage. Now we simulate which contents we want to have, having already in mind the production flow that we are aiming for and um, all of that in the background. So we simulated the alloy until we were happy, until we thought, okay, this is a pretty good guess. Um, And then you go into the real world uh, and you make a small production batch or you make a small laboratory batch that is like 40 pounds of steel. So, um, it's a small vacuum induction furnace. So you can imagine that thing like a big pressure cooker <laughs> having an induction melter inside. So it's basically just a metal vessel that can be, um, put under pressure or put under vacuum. And they can, you know, just purge it with argon. It's very enclosed. You have very good, um, You have very good control over the atmosphere in there because as soon as you heat up the steel as we all know it starts to burn it starts to form scale in the solid state and if you heat it to a liquid obviously it's also going to burn so that's a problem that's why you need a very specific vessel you cannot just i can't i i mean i can melt steel on my induction forge um in the shop and i can throw in stuff there but i it's not scientific you know, I don't have um, all the equipment that I need in the shop, although I already have a lot, um, but I'm still more comfortable at a university facility. Because we're, we're talking about, you know, in this stage, you throw in a couple of thousand euros for every melt that you do, just for the 40 pounds. Um, so you already want to have an educated guess before you do that. We did that and we got pretty lucky on the um We didn't have to iterate too much the first batch was fantastic so basically from the university i got a huge block of steel uh, which i then transported back to the forge cut into smaller pieces um heated up again you know just forged out and hot rolled as we would imagine that the production process would look like and then we made specimens of that so you know just like tiny plates um and put those through. All the different heat treatments that we thought were reasonable for that kind of steel and then we did for each of those heat treatments hardness testing toughness testing and we also did cutra testing so edge retention testing um and that's the first time when you can actually say okay how was the steel behaving during forging is it realistic that this is a forging steel how does it grind those are you know the data that I can get in the workshop. And then after that, um, the, anal- um, the analysis that Laren did with the toughness, t- toughness testing and all, all that gave us an indicator of where we are. And that was the first time that we were really happy <laughs> because we were able to basically do what we wanted to. And uh, we could outperform um, all of the other low alloy steels in terms of edge retention. And we could produce a steel that is able to achieve very high hardnesses and i think a lot of people don't really understand why we wanted uh, such high hardnesses up to 60 h hrc but um, the term that we are more looking for is edge stability so if we do very low angles on the edge it becomes increasingly more important that your steel is hard because um your steel can either break in the front your edge can either chip basically or it can bend and the thinner the angle or the the lower the angle gets the more um the more it starts to bend so if you do like a i don't know 50 hrc knife and you will sharpen it to 12 degrees per side your first cut it's just going to roll the edge so if you want to have fine angles you want to have um You want to have fine angles for cutting, for razors, for kitchen knives. Uh, You need a steel that's actually able to hold that edge. If you can do that, the second thing is you want to have it as tough as possible, um, tough enough, so that you don't get problems with chipping. So hardness is important for basically your edge angle for your edge stability. Toughness is important so you don't break your steel you know, so you don't get chipping on the edge. And edge retention basically is what happens if you saw through something. So it's like abrasion, basically. If you cut through sandpaper, the steel is going to abrade and it's going to get dull. So material is removed without bending or breaking, just by abrasion. So those are the three factors that we were looking for. And those are just you know the scientific equivalents that you can test um, that guide you or that, that can uh, give you an indicator for a real-world real application. Um, so then you can compare, okay, I know a steel that has 66 HRC and has similar toughness maybe, but it doesn't have the edge retention. Um, you know, then you can you can find the balance between the, the proper st- properties that you're looking for and you can get benchmark for what heat treatment you think is suited best for this application.
1: Hmm. So, yeah. so going yep. back, you you essentially nailed this on the first try after your first real world test.
2: Uh, it was the first melt, yes, we we nailed it on the first melt. We did a lot of research before. It was one and a half years of research before we actually Jeez. even mold any um, before we uh, did the first vim melt. But yes, it was the first Vim melt, and we did, I don't know, 50 different specimens on heat treating, and yeah. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So a that, that year awesome. and
1: a half re- well spent then, I would say. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. We consider awesome. that too. And then the fun begins, because then, up until then, everything was pretty you know, reasonable with prices. But if you want to have something produced, metallurgy is something that doesn't scale down easily so yeah you need I would to imagine. Buy big. <laughs> and all the, the the all the companies don't really want you in the beginning so they're all like ah you're too small you're not interesting um come with half a million again and we'll talk <laughs> so um it was a long mm-hmm. long journey until we found um companies to work with um that's that we can actually produce the way and process the steel in the way that we envisioned uh, with the process route that we envisioned. And yeah, the first batch was still a huge adventure um, because it's not like you buy the finished steel. All these companies say, okay, this steel has never been produced before. We haven't done it before. Um, We'll do what you say, but if it goes bad, it's not our problem. it's your problem <laughs> so yeah um it's basically like somebody gives you a mystery piece of steel and asks you to heat treat it you're going to be like yeah okay what do you want me to heat treat it i'll do it but i can't guarantee for anything it's your your piece um so i understand the companies um for them it's our research and um they just want to earn their money but it wasn't a very fun situation as a small tax with um, if you have to produce the steel and finance all of that. However, we did um, probably underestimating the risk, but um, the production risk. Yeah, we were called crazy a couple of times by the by the by the companies, <laughs> but um, they were right. Um, the risk was actually pretty big, and we lost uh, half of the first batch actually. So. We, we already went two of the three production steps. So the steel was molten and cast. It was remolten. And in the last production step, at the last company, um, I was there when it happened. Um, we did the hot rolling. So during hot rolling, you know, you still have a block that is fairly, it's like voots. I don't know if anybody's familiar with making voots, but um, when you do the first couple of forging steps, you gotta be careful you gotta you know soak the steel for a little bit um there's they call it roasting so you know get the 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 carbon to um diffuse a little bit so you don't have any um high spots in carbon that melt earlier and you want to be very very careful well our steel is not too far away from from (laughs) what the roots is so um in the casting structure it's still very tricky to forge and um we actually just missed the temperature by 50 degrees celsius um and this first block of steel just crumbled in front of my eyes on the first mm. contact with the rolling mill so it's you can imagine just you now driving your mid-size new car into a tree that's basically what happened financially on that day <clears throat> it was a big 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 drawback but luckily we had two blocks on the way so um our melt consisted of two blocks and we we called it a day we had the other block just cool down to room temperature again reassembled our forces um and well as the block was already there we had to do something with it so again We cut off pieces from the material that we had. We analyzed it. We did microscopy testing. I cut off a couple of pieces, and I just heated it up in the forge to different forging temperatures. And um, I have a rolling mill in my workshop. Um, So I just did rolling simulations you know, just did a couple of days, just heating steel to different temperatures. And I hot rolled the steel until I was comfortable with the temperature. And um, always, you know, just going back with Larin and with Marco asking <clears throat> or discussing what would be, yeah, what should we do? But, you know, the second block was already there. We, we couldn't do anything without it anyway. So we needed to decide on the temperature. If we go too low, um it will form cracks on the surface if you go too high it it crumbled like it did on the first run so that was another nerve-wracking day but the second block then therefore we were lucky or we were we did a good guess again (laughs) some good guesswork um and it all worked out nicely so then we could follow through with the rest of the process um it didn't affect the product quality in any way it was just The first block. If you get um, basically, what happened was, if the temperature is a little bit too high and your carbon concentration on the grain boundaries is too high, you can have like a tiny film um, of metal that becomes liquid. And um, we underestimated basically this effect. We thought it would the carbon would be more homogeneous at that uh, at that point in time. And. That was an so, expensive so you, mistake. Uh, yeah. I a pride. Sounds like it.
1: So, <laughs> so, so you essentially took the failed block and then did testing to determine what the proper temperature was? Is that, is that what I basically heard?
2: Um, no, we actually cut off a piece of the good block too. Oh. Um, and we compared okay. both of those. So our yield on the first batch was uh, pretty disappointing. Um, I mean, you lose a lot of material in the process always, um, because in every stage at the rolling mill, for example, you have like six meter increments or whatever, and you always cut off 30 centimeters, you know, it's always cut off, uh, one foot or something so that, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't have any problems. Just do it over and over again through the process. So it's normal to lose like 30, 40% of your batch. Um. From the beginning to the to the end um that that's you have to expect that anyways but then if you lose half of your batch uh (laughs) along the way then on top of that there's not too much (laughs) there's not too much left and then you Uh... just cut off a few chunks for testing of the last block so um yeah the first batch was was a lot smaller than anticipated and actually when we um talked about when we should do this podcast um i think it was spot on because tomorrow at 11 a.m uh we will have the hot rolling stage once again that that was the crucial moment of the first batch where we um failed the first block (laughs) so tomorrow at 11 a.m i'm gonna be at the rolling mill again um watching the spectacle and being slightly nervous i i am very confident that everything will go as planned is now we have a recipe that we are following. Um, we have one recipe that worked the first time, and it should work again. But you never know what the companies do exactly. And as I said, all the process fluctuations, they can add up. But I think, and what from everything that I've seen, I can only expect a product that is even better than the first batch. So we were. So
1: this is just the second batch that you're going to be rolling out tomorrow? Yes, second batch. <clears throat> Things are wow. moving
2: very, very slow with these companies. So, if you move, uh, if you order steel today, you will get steel in nine to 10 months at the moment. Jeez. So, as you can imagine, um, with the high risk, anyways, we couldn't order a second batch until we had confirmation that the first batch would work out. So, basically, exactly. we ordered right after we knew that the steel was okay. But I think the first batch came out in June, July. Um, so now it's like the production time afterwards. So <clears throat> it was as fast as we can. Now we already put in the second, or, uh, the third order for the batch. So this time the iterations are going to be faster. But yeah, it's it's not like Amazon Prime. You can't order today and <laughs> two days later.
1: <laughs> well, you can't even do that anymore with Amazon Prime. Jeez. <laughs> Wow, that is extremely fascinating. So just real quick, um, if if any of our listeners are interested in getting their hands on some Apex Ultra, what's that going to look like for them here in the States?
2: Um, Let me very quickly check. Um, So in the US, we have Pops Knife Supply, um, who has already been um, a retail partner of, of Apex Ultra on the first batch. They will definitely be importing um again on the second batch and in Canada we have knife maker direct who will also definitely going to get um steel there is a couple of more retailers who have approached us but um learning from the first batch as you Probably can understand. I don't want to make any promises until we have the steel in our hands. Like the the people who bought from us the first time, um, they didn't get as much as they ordered in the first batch, so they are going to be the first ones uh, whom we're going to deliver to from the second batch. So um, those two are definitely going to be like top priority, and then after that we're going to go um, basically first come first serve with all the orders um, how they came in. Another thing that is tricky for us is um, we cannot really plan the costs because we only know the cost, the final cost. Like we know plus minus 10%, but as our margin on all of this is very narrow, um, we cannot set the prices until the steel is really in our warehouse. So, you know, we just, we'll get the steel here and then we'll calculate the cost and offer it to the retail partners and then ship it to them. But we just want to, you know, we, we want to yeah. keep the cost as low as possible be, because we want to have people using it and being excited about it.
3: Yeah. You, you, you just don't want to um, promise a price and then have something happen in the production process. And then you're like, shit, yep. I am not making any money. So,
2: <laughs> exactly. And with sense. the energy prices, that's what all the companies do to us. So uh, basically, they say like, yeah, it's going to be like this, plus minus energy prices. Um, The energy price is going to depend on the price of the specific day that we are going to hard roll your steel. And we cannot promise a yield. And I mean, a yield is probably not something people think about. But um, if you have like 60% yield in the best case scenario, um, it doesn't matter what the first company charges per kilogram. I mean, you're only going to get... They're going to charge you the 100%, but you only get 60%
1: of that steal in the end. So it all just adds up. Hmm. Wow. That is intense. Uh, Ryan, um, let's uh, take this pause to throw in another ad from another one of our sponsors. And right. uh, talk about Phoenix a little bit, maybe.
3: And then after that, I have to ask you what your cat's names are. Because I've been watching them have like their own little like Drama going on behind you.
1: They've been having a battle. I've noticed yeah. that yes. Yeah. They are
2: they're very active. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Hustle and Grind is sponsored by Phoenixabrasives.com, your one stop abrasive shop. They stock all the abrasive belts you need in all sizes. They also offer knife making kits, which have all the goods you need in one kit, as well as hand sanding and buffing materials go to phoenixabrasives.com and use the code hustle10 for 10% off your order.
1: That's right guys, phoenixabrasives.com, go to the website, click shop in the upper right hand corner and they have uh, different uh, areas, they have one specifically for knife makers and you can get all different kinds of uh, belts, abrasives. Uh, buffing material uh, i just ordered from them and they have an extraordinary variety of different types of uh, ceramic belts in particular so i think i went through and i tried to order every single type of ceramic belts that they have and i'm going to try them out and i'm going to tell you guys uh, which, which one's my favorite but they have a, a large variety um, and then of course they have those incinerator belts which are phenomenal they're Price to match, but they do last and they are great. Uh, but I'm going to try out some of the other braces that they have and uh, and see what I think of them. Just because there's such a large variety. So, anyways, check out phoenixbraces.com.
3: <clears throat> what kind of braces do you recommend to buy?
2: Um, I am happy with VSM belts. I'm very happy with them. That's I, what I run too. Yeah, I like I like them. Um, one thing that I wanted want to say if we're talking about grinding belts it depends so much on how you grind I think so it's it's I stopped recommending belts really to anyone because it depends on how much pressure you run um, on your belts and what speeds you run so I feel like the common thing in the industry is running pretty fast um, with relatively low pressure so you don't overheat the steel and I run the complete opposite so I have like even my belt grinders are specifically built for low uh, RPM, high torque, because I imagine it more like milling, you know, like take deep cuts with each um, with each grain of the belt. So I put a lot of pressure on there and run the belts rather low and run water
1: cooling. <clears throat> Do you have a, so a water cooled platen? No, I have uh, spray cooling, so spray cooling. Okay, spray cooling. I've yeah. used that as well. Big um, mess. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, it makes My it shop's a big mess anyway. So who yeah. cares? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, but that's interesting that you say that because I've noticed that with with different belts, there are some belts that seem like they cut better at higher speeds, and then I have uh, these. I have some other belts that I've gotten recently that seem like they cut better at low speeds, even though most people say that ceramic is in intended to be run at a higher speed because you get more cutting life out of it that way. But I've got some other ceramics that seem to really hog material off a lot better when they're run at a lower speed.
2: Yeah, it's it's the same experience. And I have, um, a surface grinder built, um, like transformed into a belt thing instead of the stone. And I realized that the belts there, um, they dull in a completely different fashion than when I use them on the 2x72 grinder. So on the surface grinder, usually you can see like there's 99% of the grid is still on there. It's just the tips that start to glaze. You know, they just round over. And then you can't, it doesn't cut anymore. But if you take the same belt and do contour grinding on one knife and then put it on the 2x72 again, um, it's like a new belt. So it's fascinating. Just pay attention to how your belts run out because very few of them actually run out of grit in my in my experience. Most of them dull by some way. Either they clog or they glaze or, yeah.
3: I'm As glad he- you mentioned that because one of our previous guests, Noah Vachon, uh he's a Canadian knife maker. Awesome guy. I run Trizac belts, like the Gator belts mm-hmm. in he had told me that you can take a diamond stone yep. and regret them yep. and i bought a diamond stone and it works like a dream
2: yeah totally for anything like i use the vsm agglomerate belts. So i don't know what they're called but the same idea as the gator grid just a lot cheaper and probably not i i still like the i i like the gator grid too um but anywhere where you have small grids agglomerated uh into bigger grids um diamonds are awesome and if you want to get a quick belt finish on Apex Ultra, then you'll need the diamond stone right next to you as you grind uh, uh, after heat treatment. So basically, I do a couple of strokes and then just redress the um, then redress the belt. So I don't usually do the redressing with diamonds on the lower grit um, ceramic belts. So on 60 and 120 grit, I don't do that only in rare occasions if I have glazing, um, but on the finishing grids, so all these aluminum oxide agglomerate belts, whatever the name are, um, just like the ghetto grit, it's perfect. And you can see, as soon as your finish on the knife becomes bright, if it becomes shiny, mm-hmm. then basically your belts are dull, because even a 400 grit or 600 grit belt, if it's sharp, you get a matte finish on the blade.
3: Yeah, so, it should still bite. Yeah,
2: yeah. I don't need to look at the belts of my students. I look at the knife usually, and my experience is also: if you have more pressure, the belt uh, is going to cut longer. Obviously, because you your your formation of a chip basically happens easier.
3: Interesting. Awesome. I never
1: would have thought about it that way.
3: We've talked about. Uh like different makers belt progressions and how they use their belts a lot on this show because like i i grind a different way than noah grinds and all of our guests we found grind differently (laughs) you're actually the only one that grinds similar to how i grind which makes me feel good so thank you for that yeah i got (laughs) 16 120 ceramic vsm
2: and then I do the Compound 240 and 600, um, the Compound Grids, Aluminum Oxide surf, Surface Finishing
3: Belts, also from VSM. I start at 36 and I jump to 120 Trizact all the way up to like whatever. The highest one they offer is, I think, it, and Gator is like 600. Yeah. And then I, I switch to scotch brights Oh, so you only have three grids, basically, pretty much 36,
2: okay. 60, and six hundred. Yeah, makes sense.
3: And low Dude. and slow. The only one I, the only one I run fast is the thirty six ceramic. Mm-hmm. Everything else is like thirty percent or below. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Really, that low?
3: Mm-hmm. Just low and slow. Low That's and and slow. And all that micarta I have. You have to grind it like that, anyways. Because mm. it'll burn, so low and slow. I got I, titanium nice. is also f-
2: very interesting to grind. <clears throat> it's also if you if you you can actually feel it. Like if you do the low and slow technique, um, you form chips, and it feels like filing. You know, it's like <sighs> it actually feels like filing. There's no sparks. Huh. And if you go faster, then you go. You know, you can feel that the teeth or the the the, the individual um, grit, they they don't get below the surface anymore but they only get into the hardened uh, surface area so it almost feels like skating over the surface and you throw sparks and it's a spectacle but if you go very slow you can feel how it's basically chewing into the soft material behind the hardened um, surface i don't know if, if it's a common thing but if you've the where i thought of it the first time is if you machine uh, like on a milling machine or um, on a uh, turn, how do you call it? Yeah, um, uh, uh, thing. <laughs> a lathe. A lathe, thanks. Yeah, uh, or on a lathe if you do stainless steel. Um, actually, if you take one cut, the neighboring area that hasn't been cut away, but it has been impacted to, uh, it has been affected by the stress that has been put into the material by the cutter, that will get a lot harder than the material behind it. So actually the feeds and speeds for a material like that is, you know, you always have to cut behind the hardened area. You always have to cut deep enough so you cut away into the soft material and cut the, the hardened area away. And I don't know, that, that thought model just has helped me a lot with grinding too, forming a chip and getting through this area.
1: Interesting. Is, I, I've never whatever worked works. With, I've never worked with titanium before. What do you use titanium for? I made a, a whole handle out of it, <laughs> like a full oh, geez.
2: one piece <laughs> titanium handle. <laughs> yeah, it was not fun.
3: <laughs> I've was... never used it, but the sparks look cool. Yeah, because they're they do. white. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, we're at a we're at an hour thirty five here, so we should probably shut this down soon. But I just had to ask you about one more thing, and. and 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 then we can start to start to close out here um on your instagram i saw that you uh had done a laminate of both copper and stainless together into a knife and you said that someone had inspired you to do this so obviously i'm sure you want to give them credit what sort of bond do you have with that? Because I know that the the bond between stainless and carbon, if you're doing a standard stainless and my, I mean, that's obviously not the same bond that you're getting with carbon to carbon, but then you're adding in that extra element. What what, what was that like doing that, that lamination?
2: (laughs) It was frustrating. (laughs) It was really frustrating. The first couple of times I messed it up. Um, But in the end, like once, once you get the, once you get everything right, let's put it that way, and the diffusion happens, it's a pretty it's a pretty good bond. I mean, copper is always going to be softer than the steel, but you don't have it in the edge. And I think it's a I mean, it it's not technically making much sense that combination, but it's aesthetically very pleasing and it's just I, you well, know, I like striking. a challenge. It's very striking. <laughs> <laughs> I like a challenge. <laughs> so since then i've also done uh like damascus core and then copper in between and stainless cladding uh it just looks looks really cool but it's all all of the things they're always solid state diffusion bonding so um in the sciency world um this would be called an lmc a laminated metal composite and i always think it's I mean, all of the materials that we make, all the Damascus and nickel Damascus and kumai and gomai, go all that, it's all an LMC. It's all solid-state diffusion bonding. So we we never melt anything. It's just clean surfaces, put it together, make sure no oxygen gets in there, heat it up, and deform it a little bit. I mean, that's that's the whole chapter. Everything. It's always the same. Just the process parameters vary, and uh, the The degree of complexity of getting these things clean and um, together and getting no oxygen in there that varies. I mean, with Damascus, with carbon steel, with simple steels, it's pretty easy. After a while, (laughs) Um, so so it's very forgiving compared to stainless Damascus, for example. And then you put in copper, and then it's like the worst of stainless and the worst of uh, of kumai. And then you just put those two things together, and you Your process window always becomes smaller so the the range of temperatures that you can work in becomes smaller and the range of time that you can work in becomes smaller and um, how much you can deform it and how much you have to deform it you know all the windows they become smaller and smaller and you just have to find the gap you just what what will work what's not too high and not too low and what's not too fast and not too slow. So.
1: The, the temperature was really the thing that came to my mind because you're trying to find a temperature to where copper wants to be, but at the same time, stainless. That must have been tough to try and find that that proper temperature.
2: Yeah, it's tricky, especially in the beginning. It it, it wants to delaminate so bad because uh, you are at a temperature that is pretty low for stainless. You know, the stainless is still pretty strong. And in the beginning, you don't have a good bond because there's no diffusion happened yet. It's no um, – no um, friction welding or nothing so the copper is very soft there's hardly any bound to the to the stainless steel and the stainless steel is pretty hard so in that stage you just can't make many mistakes you need very controlled deformation and any stresses you know compression force is always good during um, solid state diffusion bonding but any stresses like peeling is always bad so, just be careful with that. You know, just try to get as much pressure on it. It's also why it's so much easier forge welding on a press, on a hydraulic press, especially if you have dies that are larger than the billet. You know, it's just like heating up the steel, going in there and squeezing it. There's only compression forces, there's no area that really wants to go apart. But if you do a hand hammer, your hammer is only like 10% or your impact uh, surface of the hammer is only like 10% of the billet size. So, you know, 10% are pushed together and the rest of the billet is either not pushed together or even torn apart at that moment. That's why you have to go light and fast in the beginning. So you, you know, just don't get too much stress. Don't uh, have a delaminate. So that's right. actually why. For hobbyists, it's so much harder to make um, Damascus because they usually don't have equipment um, that allows them to compress the whole thing. And then with a the hand hammer, it's very tricky.
1: Well, and for me, my press is very small. My dies are, you know, like you were saying with the hand hammer, probably 10% <laughs> the size of a billet that you would need. So anytime you squeeze that, it's trying to pull the rest of it apart. Yeah. So that would be very difficult to uh, to, to create something like that on, on a smaller press. So, How much force does it have? Uh, 12 tons.
2: 12 tons. Uh, that's enough. Just get uh, bigger dies for setting the weld. You know, just flat, flat dies. Just put some flat iron on there just for setting the weld. Helps a lot. 12 tons is enough for a smaller billet. I All think. right.
1: Well, maybe I'll give it a try. Nice. I, I haven't ventured into the, the Kumai before. I've seen a lot of guys do some amazing stuff with it and, and I constantly get people asking me, What are you gonna do? The Kumai? What are you gonna do it? And it's <laughs> like I don't know. I don't, I don't really want to. Just, I, it's kinda kinda kind of scary and I'll get there maybe.
2: Yeah. Yeah, be but careful. Though, if you overheat it, it's gonna be liquid copper shooting out of the back.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> so get your face, that's you know, what I'm worried about. No, I, I just I just saw that the stainless and the copper was so striking. It was it was beautiful. So I had to ask you about thank that. You. So that's really cool to hear about. So thank you. I appreciate that. Ryan, do uh, we have anything else we want to touch on?
3: Yes, we do. We have to tell the whole world to go buy tickets to Maximus oh, that's right. raffle. Raffle. Um, Fifteen bucks a spot or 40 for three. There's over 40 prizes. We're talking chef knives, petty knives. Ameribraid's throwing in stuff. Phoenix Abrasives is throwing in knife kit belts. Um, I don't know all the items. There's way too many. There's literally 40 or more. And I'm I'm pretty sure some more are still trickling in. So he's going to run this raffle till March 1st. And then do a huge drawing. So
1: I I don't know how I forgot about this. I was really distracted with this amazing Mm -hmm. conversation we've been having about steel and I was really getting into that. So I apologize, but let me tell you how freaking excited I am for this. Okay guys. So let's just back up a minute here. So a while ago pickle had a fundraiser that he ran for his sister-in-law and, and she had cancer and you guys, you people raised 20 grand For that family. And I want to tell you all how freaking proud I am of all of you people who donated, everyone who donated items. That was freaking awesome. So awesome. We're going to do it again, guys. Okay? So, Neil from Maximus Knives. We talked about it before. He's gone full time. Dude did not intend to go full time. All right. So you can go check out his story. You can go check out his reels that he's posted about it. I'm not going to speak for the guy, but it's, it's time to help, help our boy out. Okay. This is, this is what we do. This is a family. This is a community. We love each other and we support each other. And I can't tell you how excited I am to see so many people stepping up to the plate uh, and, and helping this guy out. So we have like, like Ryan was saying, just a ton of different people that are putting in some amazing prizes, some amazing companies, Ameribraid. Um, so there's some great prizes for makers for anyone. There's going to be some cool chef knives and some other, I mean, uh, what was it? There was some, some like super cool rings that were being donated to this. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So,
3: right. so I'm going to let on Instagram, I'm going to let our listeners choose for me. Cause I've got, two knives and I'm torn on which one I'm going to donate. So hold on, I'll go grab the other one.
1: Okay. So if you're listening to the audio only version of this podcast, you have no idea what he's about to do. So go on YouTube, uh, hustle and grind podcast on YouTube. And you'll be able to see what the hell he's doing here. So anyways, um, go to Maximus knives on Instagram and you can see his, uh, he's got, a story highlight so pinned at the top of his page go to the story highlight he's got all of his payment info there where you can buy tickets it's fifteen dollars a spot or i think it's forty dollars for three spots so go buy some tickets um i'm sure he'll be posting up uh, some more information about all the prizes um some of them are going to be maker specific because i don't think any random person on the street is going to need three bars of baker Forge and tool steel but anyways, I don't know how he, I don't know exactly how he's gonna work that out. But it's he'll he'll, he'll figure it out. It'll be great.
3: I imagine he'll split them up. That's a thousand dollars worth of steel. I mean, each yeah, one of do bars like a, or...
1: do a do a, a maker draw and then a regular person draw something something along those lines.
3: All right, so I got this big diamond grind raindrop Ooh.
4: pattern.
3: So I got that one. And then this one is a little petty knife of the Baker Ford Shichimai. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not quite there. I got to go back a little bit right there, but whatever.
1: That's fine. We can't really see it on the camera anyways.
3: <laughs> Ooh, pretty. Can you see it? Yep. So I can't decide. I don't know. Well.
1: I know that you've posted both of those on your Instagram already. So if people go to your Instagram, they can see what you're talking about and they can shoot you a DM and tell you which one you should do. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I personally think you should do the diamond grand one Tobias. What do you think?
2: Same thought here. Looks amazing. All right.
1: I just, so got- the reason I say that is because if that's going to somebody who's going to use it to, to cook at home, a, a big, sweet, Diamond grind Damascus chef knife is going to be uh, a little more eye-catching, a little more of a uh, a pride point when people come over and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm just chopping these vegetables with this beautiful yeah, diamond grind, grind, grind chef knife." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
2: I it's a funny thing because I I think the the small knives are so under, underrated in our community. Um everybody buys big knives, but at home, um probably using 30 40 60, 50% of the time a pretty small Sized knife, <clears throat> and after all, I mean, it's if it's not how often I use a knife, I don't know what it is that makes a knife uh, valuable. And I'm actually a pretty big fan of a, like a small petty. A good petty is a very, very useful knife in just everyday life, breakfast, whatever.
1: <clears throat> it's it's amazing how sense. often you hear that because you're you're absolutely right. Everyone goes for the big chef knives, and and some people make ten inch knives that they're expecting to be used as, as an everyday chef knife i personally don't make anything bigger than an eight inch chef but the majority of people that i talk to they're reaching for a six inch something smaller like that for the majority of the tasks that they're doing in their kitchen yeah that diamond
3: time, grind I,
1: i'm making knives for home cooks i don't know what <clears throat> professional chefs are using all the time um
3: those the, are the that way, one i know the nine
1: I and ask. a
2: half it really depends it, on really? whom you whom you're selling to. I think. Um, I, yeah. I think like the 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 home enthusiasts they have giant knives very often, <laughs> and yeah. the the average Joe is probably reaching for the smaller stuff. But professional chefs also like some absurd orders. <laughs>
3: They're very specific. Half sword. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But whatever works for them, I think it's it's fun to listen to to the different ways of working and how people use their knives for sure for sure whatever works for them i mean nothing is wrong yeah
1: and and i mean i've i've learned so much from my customers you know i know a lot of people try and shy away from doing custom orders and i respect that like don't get me wrong that would be fantastic to just make what you want put it up sell it but i've learned a ton from my customers whether it's talking about hand size or how they use their knives or what they prefer and and i've ended up creating things that I wouldn't have made otherwise, and I've learned a lot from it. So yeah, and, I,
2: and sometimes you're like, nah, that's not for me. I'm not going to make that again." And another time you're like, oh, well, look at that. I didn't think mm-hmm. that would turn out nicely, <laughs> and it did."
1: Sometimes at it's point, like, "Oh, yeah, I'm glad it's you insurance. like it, but uh, I'm just going to forget that that happened." <laughs> but are uh, uh, you yeah, not going to post that on Instagram?
2: Pit. No, 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 I'm not going to post that. <laughs> Sorry,
1: uh, yeah. I know those ones but. too. But <laughs> All awesome. right, guys. Well, this has been a great show, Tobias. Thank you so much for for thank joining us. I think this is, I, I love these episodes where we get to talk to somebody that's super knowledgeable in a specific field, and we really get to pick their brain and and get a lot of information out of it. I I personally feel like I've learned from this, and I hope the listeners have too. And have. Uh, and and yeah, awesome. it's it's been an absolute thrill to have you and. Honestly, if you don't mind, uh, we'd love to have you on again. Um, I feel like there's some stuff that we could have delved deeper into um, if we had more time. So, absolutely,
3: I'm very, anytime. I'm very open to that, and I'm very interested in that grinding jig.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. The thumb,
3: you could call it the Tobias Thumb Saver, <laughs> the thumb support.
2: Um, yeah absolutely yeah i think there's going to be a lot of interest about that um anybody who has seen it and realized what it is has been curious about it so i'm pretty sure we'll see more of that and obviously i'd be happy to come back anytime it's been uh, very fun and yeah just let me know when and we'll make time oh before i hit the outro music what are your cat's names uh they're runa heimdahl and alma So they're just in their teens and they're having a very active time at the moment. They also (laughs) cover everything at the moment. So the couch is covered in blankets because they make a mess
3: and they destroy everything at the moment. I have a puppy right now and he is a nightmare. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's like yesterday we bought them some um, grass, you know, just so they can eat the grass. It's good for their digestion. And they just decided to dig out all of the soil and spread it throughout the floor. So, you know, (laughs) coming in the morning, Sunday morning, your whole living room is full of soil. (laughs) Just earth everywhere. Like, yeah, great. Let's make coffee. Uh, But yeah, they're cute. uh,
3: On that note, it was a good one. Thank you, guys.
1: Everybody have a good week. See you next time.
2: Goodbye.